Namaste and good evening to all of you. We continue tonight with the spiritual joy of commenting actions and teachings from the life of Jesus as outlined in the Gospel of Luke this time. And last time I was in the middle of talking about the events coming up about the baptism of Jesus and um, therefore I was talking about the role of John the Baptist who has a very important part to play. Again I'm saying some people, especially it's a new age culture thing where some people are going to extreme length in which uh, John is considered a sort of a guru of Jesus. John was just six months older than Jesus, strictly speaking, and John was a cousin of Jesus. Therefore, there was no way in which he was a guru. Moreover, when John encountered Jesus, he humbly declared that he is nothing compared to Jesus, and therefore, Definitely these kinds of speculations are the type of people who cannot understand Jesus as an avatar. And therefore they just want to make Jesus as another dude. It's you, I and Jesus. We are three dudes. Like transforming Jesus into a banal person who happens to have some spiritual dimension. But that's about it. That's not correct, because according to the understanding of the yogis, Jesus is not just another dude among spiritual people. Jesus is an avatar of the scope of Krishna and other similar avatars. And because of this, it cannot be understood that way. So, John is a spiritual person who acts at that time of the history of the earth, And uh, Jesus is coming just a little bit later. And the role of John is that John confirms Jesus. In the Apoc- This pattern is so powerful that in the apocalyptic predictions about the end of the world and the second coming of Jesus, the different seers, the different prophets who made prophecies, The most of them, the famous of them is the Revelation of John, but that's another John. There are two Johns, there are about five Johns mentioned around, and that John is John the Apostle. So in the Revelation of John, it is said clearly that as Jesus comes again, John the Baptist will also come again a little bit before Jesus coming again. So they come like a team. It's like... The, it's exactly like in some musical concerts where they have a big band playing and then they have a minor band playing before the big band to warm up the crowds. So exactly as you have a warm-up, a preparator, a forerunner, exactly in the same way John the Baptist is the forerunner of Jesus, is the one who warms up the people to Jesus. And even at the second coming of Jesus, the same pattern will be repeated according to Christian mystics. That first there will be a time of John the Baptist, 
and then John the Baptist will preach and herald the coming of Jesus. So, moreover, in the Bible itself, I don't know if in the Gospel of Luke or which one of them, maybe we'll encounter that statement in this very uh, Gospel. You'll have to fix those one day. So in the very words of Jesus, there is the clear statement where Jesus says, embarrassingly clearly, that John the Baptist, that John the Baptist, was nobody else but the reincarnation of the prophet Elijah. Because people say, who uh, do you say you were or what's happening here? And some the, the disciples say, well, people say that you might be the prophet Elijah reborn. Which means the Jews believed that people could be reborn. Or maybe only prophets, exceptionally. Like there is reincarnation or there isn't. The ancient Judaism and the Kabbalah, they say that yes, there is. So uh, the people say that you might be the prophet Elijah reborn. And Jesus says, I'm telling you the truth, Elijah came already and they haven't even recognized him. And it says, then the disciples understood that he was speaking about John. So, Jesus speaking about John, says that the prophet Elijah came already, and it was John, and people didn't even realize that John was the reincarnation of the prophet Elijah. This paragraph is very embarrassing for the Christian theologians, who actually chose to leave reincarnation in a twilight. Actually, reincarnation is not completely, completely, completely declared as impossible. It has simply been decided in the church council, starting from the year 300 and something to 700 and something, it has been decided that this idea should be temporarily not questioned. And it has been announced that if there will be a seventh council of the Christian church, which sounds almost impossible because the Christian church is not one anymore. It's hundreds and thousands of Christian denominations. But if utopically there would be a seventh council of the church, that one will discuss the issue of reincarnation. So the issue of reincarnation is not even permanently decided upon. It's left pending. Until further notice, you shouldn't speak about reincarnation. That's what official Christian theology says. But in the Bible itself, Jesus says, Elijah came back and it was John. And people didn't realize, but Jesus knew that this was the reincarnation or re-manifestation. Whatever, if you don't like the word reincarnation because it's too crude, then whatever other word which would say this was Elijah. So... Uh, John the Baptist may very, may very well be the reincarnation of one of the great prophets of humanity. Elijah is quite famous for his spiritual power. That he is a great prophet. He is a very, very, very great prophet because he was given the responsibility to acknowledge Jesus, like to tell to the whole world, hey, this is Jesus, you know, this is the Son of God. You know, on his responsibility, on his authority, 
And as soon as Jesus appeared, John not only that acknowledged him, but somehow the flow of events made in such a way that John conveniently disappeared. Like in a month, he was arrested, condemned to death, killed. And he said very clearly, his star, the star of Jesus, has to rise and mine has to decline. Because there could not be two centers of power. Like people say, I don't like what Jesus said, I'm going to ask John. Then there would be two prophets and, you know, human beings are human beings. We can assume that maybe Jesus was, to a large extent, into a permanent state of Bhava Samadhi and he was going on uh, the water, you know, he was walking 10 centimeters above the ground all the time. But John was not. John was just a human being, a prophet. And then people will ask something of Jesus and something of John. No, people do that all the time. They go to Yogananda, then they go to Shivananda. They go to Shivananda, then they go to Osho Rajneesh. They go to this, they go, you know, and uh, in Romania we have a proverb which says, a child with two midwives will have its belly button unsevered. Because uh, normally one of the midwives is supposed to sever the umbilical cord of the child. But if there are two, each one of them thinks the other one will do it. I better wash the child or something. And in the end, the child will stay untreated properly. That's why you should not have two midwives. Because they kind of sabotage each other. They confuse each other. In the same way, you should not take treatment from two proeminent doctors. Because each one of them is going to give you a slightly different treatment. And then you are going to have doubts about the efficiency of both treatments. Instead of 100% believing in one of them and getting the 40% placebo, which comes from the faith in the doctor. 40% is a huge percentage in healing when the doctor is good. And then starting contesting the doctors. The same thing is valid about the gurus. You have a guru who is tantric and you have a guru who is ascetic. And the guru who is tantric tells you go and have three times per day sex. And the guru who is celibate says stay away from sex. Then what are you going to do? Both gurus can be good, talented, competent. But they follow different lineages and different methods. And then their advice is going to be different. That's why the yogis in India and Tibet, they say don't follow two gurus. Choose one guru and follow the advice of one guru, of one doctor of one midwife, no, don't follow several advices. So if John the Baptist would have lived three years in parallel with Jesus, there would have been two doctors in the society. And people would have pitted them against each other. Would have said, uh, somebody said, forgive your enemy. Uh, what do you say? And maybe John the Baptist preaching more on Manipura, because his attitude is not always on, when we have seen some of his sayings, we've seen that he's often on Manipura, like many Jewish prophets were Manipuristic. And maybe he has some Puritanic Vishuddha, because he lives in the desert and he is a Puritan. And John the Baptist will give an answer on Manipura Vishuddha. And the people throw against him without telling him it comes from Jesus. They say it comes Somebody said this, what's your opinion? And John the Baptist would say, come on, it sounds a little bit like nonsense. I'm telling you like this. 
and people will come and say, See, Jesus is not the, uh, the, the Son of God, because you say a different thing than He does. Like people have this demon in them all the time, all the time, to ask the, two, the same question from two gurus, from two teachers, trying to mysteriously, why would you do that? Trying to catch one of them red-handed. Like that's the purpose of a disciple, to catch the teacher red-handed. Why would you have such a demonic need inside you? People do that all the time. One of my good friends who is a great spiritual teacher that most of you know, people go to him and they say, what's your opinion about the awakening of the spirit? Because I'm having a workshop on around my birthday, which I'm freely offering it to the community, which is called awakening of the spirit or the Agama retreat. And the other spiritual teacher who is a perfectly valid spiritual teacher, a wonderful spiritual person, we said, well, the spirit usually means the spirit and there's no need to awaken it because it's awakened already. So these people simply, but he didn't know it was the name of my workshop. So people did it on purpose, like demonically. No, let's try to get one of the teachers say something bad about another one of the teachers, you know, just like this, just, just to create mistrust, just to create lack of confidence. And that's why uh, John did an incredible thing. He said his star must rise and mine must decline. Like he simply saw, I have to disappear. Conveniently, now it's the star of Jesus that's coming up. And I become a liability. So he prayed to God. He did some causal thing. Like now my time is up. In one month, he was out. He was gone. And that's why it's very important to see what a great person John the Baptist was. What a vision he had. Not only that he saw Jesus. You know, people will see somebody. Jesus was Mr. Nobody until that time. And he comes to John who is full on baptizing people. Uh, for on a position of authority. Like people were kissing his big toe all day long. And then he sees Jesus who is his little cousin his young cousin, and he says, I'm not worthy to tie your shoelaces, you know. I'm like, you come to me to, I need baptism from you. You know, it's like, what, what baptism? Are you kidding me, you know? And this is how humble he can be, at the same time being so manipuristic and so determined, and he has this incredible common sense. How many people would say, I have to disappear to make place to this one? It's like, no, it's exactly like you would say, Swamiji, what would you do if you discover that one of your disciples here in Agama is some reincarnation of Ramakrishna or somebody and is coming up like a shooting star? Then I should make myself invisible exactly because of the same thing. The question is, would you have the humbleness to step aside? Would you have the radical humility to just disappear? Maybe you don't have to die decapitated like John the Baptist, but just disappear in Tibet and never appear again. Or some, would you do that? Like what clarity? What kind of lucidity? What kind of discrimination do you need for that? That he suddenly in the middle, well, he was saving people. He said, I cannot stop my Dharma. 
every day 500 people come to me to baptize them. And you just want me to go and get dead? Like in the middle of my act. But I'm doing a lot of good. If I continue five years, I will do a lot of good in this country. No. He just said his star must rise and mine must decline. He even took his disciples. There is a special love between a guru and his disciples. Like mother to child. He took his disciples, Andrew and Philip, and he told them, Behold the Lamb of God, now you must follow him. Like he sent away his disciples to become the disciples of Jesus. He said, He's your guru, and I will just fade away. And he actually faded away in a pretty terrible way, because he was killed. He was assassinated by the king of that day. And thus, I'm saying, how much faith How much lucidity, how much discrimination, and how much detachment does one need to be like John? To surrender in such a perfect way. That's why John the Baptist is a real exceptional person. It's a real exceptional prophet. And that's why I take out this thing that he was the guru and... uh, then that would put him like on an equal position or better position than Jesus. This is said only by people who try to diminish the stature of Jesus into some, oh, there was a community of crazy vegan people in Israel who are called the Essenes. And Jesus was one of the Essenians and so on. And John the Baptist had been his confessor, elder, teacher, guru, Whatever you want to call it. That's a very skewed view. When you analyze clearly what happened with Jesus and John the Baptist, then you see the whole scope of this story. So this famous John the Baptist was preaching and he was giving some very hard thing. You remember he was almost expressing a grudge that people were coming to him And he said, brood of vipers, produce keep in keeping with the fruit, in keeping with the repentance. Like he said, how smart were you to come here and you say you are children of Abraham and that means shit because God can make stones into children of Abraham and all that. So he's very rude to them. He approaches them in a very rude way and in a very karmayogic thing and... He says, he ends, the last thing which I ended last time, is that he says that every tree does not produce good fruit, will be cut down and thrown into the fire. That's again a skewed teaching, because a Tibetan guru would have said, if now you are demonic, it's Kali Yuga. And if you are materialistic, selfish, demonic, you are not going to pass the test. Your life is going to be a fiasco. You are going to live your life just feeding, catering to your own ego. And when you will die, you're just going to look back at your life and say, Bummer, I fell for all the Kali Yuga shit. This is how I got educated from the family, from the school, from the society, from the television. And I thought that this is good. Because people say, why didn't you live like in the 15th century? People say, man, I was born in the 21st century, you know, it's like, I wish I had more faith and I lived like the people of yore, but 
very few people can do that. I was born in the 21st century and I got fed with shits three years old. You know, the parents, the school, the kindergarten, you know, the cartoons which I watch on television, everything was filled up with subliminals and suggestions and things which were making me a child of this century. And then you are asking me to live like I was St. Francis of Assisi in the 12th century. You know? It's very hard. How many people did that? How many people in the 20th century had the belief clarity of a René Guénon or of a Julius Evola or of, you know, like the great metaphysicians or not to mention a Yogananda Paramahamsa, a Aurobindo, a Shivananda, a Mahananda Mai and all those. So, Therefore, John is threatening very bitterly, but of course a Tibetan or Indian master would have toned it, would have said, if you live your life in a demonic way, you are creating a lot of demonic resonance, and then when you will die, you will probably go to a hell or something. But it's not forever, because hell doesn't last forever, because otherwise hell would be like God, absolute, infinite, can't last forever. Therefore, you'd go to hell, let's say, for 20 years. Let's say for 2,000 years. Whatever it is, it's a relative number. There's a great saint of Christianity who was suffering from a painful disease. I forgot what it was. And he prayed to God to be relieved of it. And an angel appeared like God had a sense of humor. This is really a, a playfulness of God, what I'm describing to you now. And an angel appeared to him in the prayer and he said, God send me. It was like a test, testing him. And God told me to tell you that either you should stop complaining about the disease because it's your cross to carry, or you can just go for three days in hell and pay the whole caboodle and then it will be over. And he said, well, three days in hell, you know, then I'm free. And he went into a totally agonizing place. And it, he went there for a long, long time, after which he started screaming in panic. He said, you said three days, you said three days, and so on. At which the angel appears and says, why are you complaining? And he said, you said three days, you forgot me here, and so on. It's not fair. At which the angel says, by the celestial heaven, you've been about three minutes in hell. So he's like, why are you complaining at such an hour? You said three days. At which the saint said, yeah. Okay, so then he uh, emitted the famous sentence, which said, rather than three days in hell, better sick your whole life and suffering. Because people don't imagine what hell can be. And of course, there are lighter hells and deeper hells. The Vedic tradition describes seven levels of hell. The Tibetans describe five to seven types of hell. And there are other and other traditions which describe that, of course, hell is of different kind. If you are in hell because you are a liar and uh, I don't know what, it's something different than if you are a murderer, and it's a totally different thing than you are a blasphemer, and you are, have been going, as the Christian Church puts it, to go against the Holy Spirit, to blaspheme against the Holy Spirit. There are very different levels of hell. And thus... Uh, a Tibetan guru would have said, yeah, if you have a shitty life, like if you are the tree that does not produce good fruit, 
in the language of John the Baptist, you will go in a bitter place for 20 years or for 200 years or for 2,000 years and you wish you were not. Because it's going to be really bitter and subjectively it's going to feel like it lasts forever and ever. So, better don't. But John the Baptist doesn't have this luxury to use metaphysics with people. He makes things black and white. He says, if you are a bad tree, you shall be cut and thrown into the fire. He forgets to say for 10,000 years. And then it's over. No? So it's like he gives a more black and white view, this kind of typical Jewish firebrand prophetic thing, where he um, scares people and he says, don't go there, don't even consider the alternative. And then, just to see, because that's the little which continues with John, there is his presence just comes up once more in the story, but minimalistically. Still here we are because we introduce him, and then what happened? Then the crowds being scared, when you find such a person, either you are the 21st century skeptical, you are George Carlin making fun of religion, and you are some... uh, this guy who made this ridiculous documentary called Religulous or something, you know, where you are just an atheist and a skeptic and you make fun of everybody and you say, yeah, sure, John the Baptist, you know, kiss my ass, you are just talking nonsense. You know, either you go that way or if you are a believer, then you go and say, oops, no, 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 like this is really severe. So, of course, the crowds reacted, at least 90% of the crowds, 70% of the crowds, reacted in a way which John expected them. Like they said, okay, you are asking us to mend our lives. How? So, what should we do then? They asked. And John answered. His answers are very relevant because they show the way he was thinking, the society to which he was addressing, the chakra on which he was working, and other such things. He says, the man with two tunics should share with him who has none. And the one who has food should do the same. So that's the first answer. No? And he basically preaches a sort of socialism. Like the rich should give to the poor. The one who has clothes should give to the ones who don't have. The one who has food should give to the ones who don't have. This is so highly objectionable, first of all, because everybody can say, I have because I work my ass off, and the one who doesn't have is a bum bum who smokes marijuana all day long, and then he wants the doll, you know, he wants social help. But he is actually a loser who can't rub two pennies together, and he wants to live out of public mercy. So, if you are a libertarian, the philosophy of Ayn Rand, the Manipura Chakra philosophy, the ultra Manipura Chakra of Ayn Rand, which is going further than all the liberal and right-wing political views in the society, it's a hard-level right-wing view, it simply says, if you perform charity on the poor, you teach them to stay dependent on social help and others. You should let them go starve until they will get a thorn up their ass and move. When they are one inch from death, then probably they will get motivated 
to pull the finger out of their asses and do something. So not everybody would agree. It's a sort of a Manipura doctrine, which is more like Karl Marx, like the proletarians should take from the rich or something, or the rich willingly should give to the poor or something. But as you can see, John the Baptist seems on a social level, he does it out of mercy. Not really, he doesn't mention love. He mentions a sort of a kindness. This loving kindness is a Buddhist concept on Manipura. It's kindliness from Manipura. It's sympathy. It's goodwill. It's like a benign king chooses to be generous. It's not because of a state of consciousness in Anahata. It's not like we are all one and I am the Christ who is one and the same with everybody. That's a superior state of consciousness. John doesn't go there. He talks to a country where people are quite Manipuristic, in a society which is Manipuristic. He's a fiery preacher in the desert. So he actually gives an answer which is more of equity on Manipura. And again, we could explore this as much as you want, a sort of re-evaluating karma. Why the people that have good karma should try to give part of their good karma to the people who have a bad karma. Because the people who have a bad karma are probably murderers, thieves, liars, cheaters, and they deserve their bad karma. So let them deal with their karma and learn their lesson. If you take some money and give it, they will not get anything because their bad karma will still be there and they will die of thirst near a lake, as the Tibetans say. There's a Tibetan proverb which says some people die of thirst on the shore of a lake. Like the lake is right there, but because you are stupid, you don't realize you should drink. No? So in the same way, it's with the people have bad karma. No? People say, I have a bad sexual karma. Here is a good sexual partner for you. You should go kumbaya. You know, it's like I've got a good sexual partner. But this, bad, this sexual partner is 15 years younger than me. Did somebody ask you anything about the age? You know, it's like, why do you put uh, barriers? No, you are trying to make it difficult. Like Shiva gave you a solution and you are just dismissing it, saying, yeah, it's not quite what I expected. Sure, then wait for the second offer from Shiva, you know. You think you can play with God and if you just, the God is putting a gift on your doorstep and you refuse it because it's not what you expected. You know, it's like, no. So it's like even if uh, somebody rich gives a gift to a poor person, they are going to refuse it. They are saying, no, no, I'm not going to take money from Bill Gates because he's an asshole. You know? Tough luck. You could have postponed your bad karma for a hundred years, you know? Meanwhile, you could have done some. But now, because you have some sort of principles, out of those principles, you just flush down the toilet an extraordinary opportunity, which may be the lords of karma gave to you as a test. So, that's why I say uh, that there can be, we can raise so many objections to this model of John, also because we don't know in detail all the things of John. It's a short insert in history where people are asking what to do and John was preaching, first of all, a sort of social 
equality, you know, because he was of the opinion that social inequities, they are many of the sources of the suffering in the world. Again, I'm saying, there are people who are being offered anything. I lived for a number of years in Denmark. In Denmark, this left-wing, socialistic, Scandinavian, northern type of society has principles which from the standpoint of other countries can sound almost absurd. Like, for example, in Denmark, it's defined by constitution, by parliament, by this, that in Denmark, it's completely unacceptable that somebody should not have food or lodging. It's unacceptable. If you don't have, the government will give you. It's completely unacceptable that somebody goes to bed in the night and says, today I had no money for the food. It cannot be accepted. It's considered to be against humanity. So people who are complete outcasts, the government will give them extraordinary money from the public money just to keep the uh, public consciousness clean. Like we are clean. We never allowed anybody to sleep under a bridge or die of starvation. However, there are people who sleep on the street. I have seen people wrapped in newspapers and in a, sleeping in a chair near the railway station. And I asked, how comes with your famous policy? And they said, oh, that woman, she has been in the newspapers ten times. Everybody knows her. She actually has an apartment given by the community. And she receives social money. But she still prefers to sleep in the city, on the street, wrapped in newspapers. Like, that's her choice, we can't stop her. But she has an apartment and she has food for the money. And she chooses to be a bum. He, she wants to live like a miserable person on the street. You cannot violate that. No? So that's why I say, sometimes when you think in karmic terms, you see that some people, even when you offer them a good life, they still want shit. They choose. They love shit. They have a resonance with the shitty life. Some people could be happy and they choose to be unhappy. It's the same thing we see in Tantra. We have people who come with a miserable Svadhisthana in which they suffered a lot and we offer them the opportunity step into the Tantric world and stop suffering. Guess what? They bring the shit in Tantra. They find a way of suffering. That's why in India there is a proverb which says, while the wise man manages even in hell, the idiot finds a way to suffer even in paradise. That's the problem, that there is a resonance in your chakras. There is a choice. No? Many people come and say, if I could live in Kopangan, I feel I would be in paradise. Guess what? People who live here three years, they experience a lot of shit and a lot of hell. You come to paradise, this is a paradise island. You come to a paradise island to suffer, then go back to your country and suffer there. Go in London and live in some grey cement jungle and suffer in London. Get polluted, smoke, inhale, fumes, eat shit, you know. It's like, why do you need to come to paradise so that here you bring the hell from London with you and you suffer here, you know? That's the problem, that there is the resonance in the chakras. So, in the moment when John preaches this, he's open so many subjects, like, is this the solution to the evils of the world? You will see 
that Jesus doesn't put it in the same way. Jesus doesn't give a sort of a Manipura chakra social solution to the evils of the world. Tax collectors also came to be baptized. Teacher, they asked, what should we do? Now, the tax collectors were the scum of the earth. Not only because people hate the tax collectors, because they take your money, and you think, well, if I wouldn't get the tax collected, then I would be well off. But in that particular circumstance, the tax collectors, the tax was going to the Romans. So the tax collectors were double enemies, because they were sucking people's blood, which is okay, arguable, if taxes are really necessary in a civilized society or not. No, we are not going to go there. We're not making social science here. But on the other hand, the tax collectors in the Jewish time, in the time of Jesus, the tax was going to the Roman Empire. So the tax collectors were perceived not only as a pain in the neck, but also as traitors because they worked for the enemy. So the tax collectors were like really, really people who felt like, oh my God, we really are going to burn in hell. But the tax collectors, like any other person who, in your view, could represent a person who is socially dirty, some of you could be left-wing uh, people, and you could consider that the capitalists are the scum of the earth, and they should all burn in hell and whatever. So whoever is on your blacklist, <clears throat> they are human beings. They have the Spirit of God in them. They represent Atman, the Supreme Divine Consciousness. As such, each and every one of them is a manifestation of God, which you might dislike, like you are free to dislike King Genghis Khan or Adolf Hitler or whoever, you know. Yes, you dislike some of them, but they are still that. So, the tax collectors, they are still human beings with a soul. And some of them don't want to go to hell. Some of them think about their redemption. You can say that a Hollywood actor is a, a person who lives a immoral lifestyle, making obscene amounts of money and all that. But then you have a Richard Gere and the Keanu Reeves and others who go and sit at the feet of the Dalai Lama and they learn meditation and they proclaim themselves as Buddhists and so on. No? So it doesn't matter if some people are tax collectors or not. Some of them have a soul and they are intelligent enough to realize there could be a problem, there could be a problem. I need to, so they went to John. And they said, John, we are those problem people called tax collectors. What should we do? Like, how do you see our life going? And John straight answered. He said, don't collect any more than you are required to. Which means this was a problem. You can imagine that some slippery, manipuristic Jewish person had to collect tax of 200 and levy 220 because 20 will stay comfortably in his pocket. Once you have the power over the money, and the other people cannot read and write and count, very few people could read and write and do mathematics in those days, then you are a sort of a one-eyed man among the blind. You are king. And therefore, they were surely manipulating. And John, knowing this, 
he said it's one thing that you are serving the powers that be, the, you know, the, the forces that are there, that's a bigger thing, it's about the society, it's about if we are going to throw this yoke away off our shoulders, but until that time you have to obey to the system, but you have to obey to the system, period. Not one millimeter more than that. Like, do the minimum that you have to do. Just do your duty. Then, it's like a karma yoga. It's like, a, like that's my job, that's what I do. No, if you don't like it, just resign. And if you still can do that job, do it, but do it honestly. Again, a view on Manipura. As you can see, John the Baptist is not giving much on Anahata. It is Jesus who comes with this extraordinary thing on Anahata. Then some soldiers ask him, and what should we do? Because the soldiers again, either they were Roman soldiers, which doesn't seem so, because John the Baptist was not interfering with the Romans, so therefore it seems they were Jewish soldiers, but the Jewish soldiers served the local king, who was a tool of the Romans. So, indirectly, the soldiers were still serving the occupants of the country. They were collaborationists. They were collaborating with the Romans via their own local king, who was a puppet. And he replied, don't extort money and don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. Which means that these things were happening. He doesn't say it out of the blue. He says, don't extort money, which means soldiers were abusing their power, like police can do in banana republics and other places, you know, that they would extort some money. Why? Simply because they have a certain latitude. Simply because they have a certain lee, and nobody, they are allowed to exert abuses. And don't accuse people falsely, which is even worse, and which probably also happened. So, Again, it's a purity on Manipura. He tells them, be like samurai. Be like knights. Have a clean money. You are soldiers, you are soldiers. That's your dharma. Be a clean soldier. Don't extort money. Don't accuse people falsely. And just be content with your pay, whatever it is. Simple Manipura rules in the way in which John the Baptist could see that people would not create negative karma that people would not challenge the anger of God. That's his view. And on Manipura, of course, it corresponds to so many systems. Remember that the whole Jewish system before Jesus came was based on a lot of Manipura, the laws of Moses, the tablets of the law. It's very much a system made on do this, do this, don't do this, don't do this. It's a system of discipline. Even in the Orthodox Judaism of today, there are hundreds of rules to be expected, to be uh, respected every day. Like the Orthodox Jews in Israel and in some other parts of the world, they can't flip an electric switch on Saturdays. Flipping an electric switch is considered to be an offense to God. And what they do is that they train monkeys. Like you see here monkeys picking up coconuts. In Israel there are Orthodox Jews that have monkeys that turn on the light for them on Saturdays. You can't believe it, but it's true. And some of them don't have monkeys. They have Filipinos. 
the richer ones, they hire servants from the Philippines who are not Jewish and who can flip switches on Saturdays. How far would you go? How far would you go with that? Yeah. So this is strictly Manipura. It's a sort, it's like an iron circle. It's like a circle made of iron in which you are having like a belt of iron. You know, it's rules, 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 rules. It's a typical thing on Manipura. And John the Baptist is not the one who brought the leap to mankind. Somebody bigger than John the Baptist was needed for bringing to humanity something even bigger than that. And that was Jesus. That's why Jesus comes and he comes with a different level altogether. He comes and says, a good Manipura is good. And now listen to Anahata. I'm going to get you something better than that. And of course, many people even couldn't understand. At least people could understand John the Baptist. Because John the Baptist was talking about a social justice, a correctness, a straightforwardness, a righteousness. And those were embedded in the Jewish culture. The people were waiting expectantly and were all wondering in their hearts if John might possibly be the Messiah. Like, there was a stream that people were waiting. They knew. The prophets of Israel had said repeatedly, somebody is coming, God is coming, be prepared. Now constantly they hammered. And of course, 800 years have passed and he was still not there, but people were living in an... Now that they were conquered by the Romans, it was double pressure, like the religion was shit. The priests were selfish. The local Jewish king was an asshole. And on top of it, they paid taxes to the Roman Empire. And the Romans did the big laws and rules in their country. So the pressure was so big that many simple people said there has to come a relief. There has to come a relief from God. And thus, people were from time to time wondering, when is the Messiah coming? John answered them all, I baptize you with water. But one more powerful than I will come, the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Like John simply says, I am performing a ritual which is symbolic. Like I am baptizing you with water. And then it's like a trigger for you to mend your lives. It's like an anchor in NLP, in Neuro Linguistic Programming. No, I touch your shoulder and you say alpha now and then you go in alpha waves. So you say righteousness now and then I'll start to try to live a righteous life. Like these rituals and symbols have a power psychologically. But they are not the big thing. And he says, don't think what I do is the ultimate. He says, I baptize you with water. Like there is no mystery to it. I pour some water on you. It's a symbol. It's still water. But then he says there comes one. I'm not even worthy to tie his shoelaces or untie his shoelaces. You know? Like somebody who is not human. Somebody who is much bigger. And that one will baptize you with Holy Spirit and fire. Generally in the Jewish mysticism which John is extending. He's part of it because Christ has not come yet to change the covenant, in the Jewish mysticism, the Holy Spirit, which is called Ruach, the breath of God, the prana of God, 
by extending it, it's a bit forced, it's not exactly prana. This Holy Spirit, which corresponds to the Shakti element in the Tantric tradition, this Holy Spirit is resembled with fire. For example, when Peter and Paul were hit by the Holy Spirit 49 days after the crucifixion of Jesus, they saw flames above their head, like in their Sahasrara, there was something like fire. That f- and Moses, when he saw God on Mount Sinai, he saw God as fire. So sometimes this Holy Spirit appears to the vision of some people as fire. You can go and see a symbol of that in the Yantra, which my friend Sahajananda uses for Hridaya Yoga, where in the middle there is a very strange symbol. That strange symbol is not invented by Sahajananda, it's traditional, and it's the symbol of the Holy Spirit. And it simply represents like a candle, double. It's exactly like you'd have a candle in the middle, burning this way and this way. So it's like a double flame. It's a flame, you know, if you'd cut it in half, you would put a candle at either end of it, and that would be a simple flame. But like this, it's a double. It's a flame without support. It's a flame that doesn't need a candle to burn. It's a flame which burns out of the blue, and that's the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit is not of the nature of fire, but symbolically it is considered to be like a fire. If you remember, those of you who are here, in the Saturday before the Orthodox Easter, we made a special meditation in the school called the Holy Light Ceremony, because, and I showed you videos from Jerusalem, because there this holy fire comes on the Saturday before the Orthodox Easter. It actually comes every year since more than a thousand years. And the first people who get that flame, they put it in their face and everywhere, and it doesn't burn. It's like a flame which is not fire. Because that flame in the beginning, it's a pure manifestation of the Holy Spirit, of the Holy Ghost. And thus, the Holy Ghost was seen by mystics and in mysticism like a sort of a flame which is not the fire element. It's a flame which is simply the light of God. And it appears like a flame. And, so on. and that's why he says here that he will baptize you with Holy Spirit and with fire. It's sort of equivalent. It's not two different things. Holy Spirit and fire, it's something which is difficult to define. It's the breath of God and fire. This Holy Spirit is sometimes compared to fire because it is the universal Shakti and the universal Shakti produces life and it's the same universal Shakti under the form of Kali or others like her that also produces death and tsunamis and other such things. Therefore, Shakti means everything in the universe, including the good and the bad, including the peaceful and the violent, the loving and the angry. That's why the Holy Spirit of God sometimes produces enlightenment and sometimes it burns down the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. And as such... The Holy Spirit is a very frightful thing because it's not by itself good or bad. It's just divine. And it's a divine, immeasurable, infinite, overwhelming, awesome power 
for which the human perspective is completely insignificant, like the fact that, oh, but this could be actually unpleasant. Yeah, tough luck. That's what's happening when the steamroller goes over you. When a steamroller crosses the road, there could be a million ants in its way. The steamroller can't see the ants and they get squashed in the way. In the same way, the Holy Spirit represents the totality, represents something much bigger. And to, therefore, there exists this legitimate fear in the Jewish mysticism and in the Christian one later, that nobody should provoke the Holy Spirit. Even later, Jesus says, and that will be a great teaching, which I'll explain in detail when that one is coming, that you can even blaspheme against God and you'll get away with it. But if you blaspheme against this part of God, which is called the Holy Spirit, you are going to get screwed really, really bad. Really bad. And there's going to be no quarter. So Jesus tells you, don't go against the Holy Spirit because it's going to be really, really nasty. Therefore, there is a sort of a religious fear in front of the Holy Spirit, which is like a fire. And some people get light, and some people burn in hell from it, from the same Holy Spirit. That's why this duality that I baptize you with Holy Spirit and fire, you sometimes may see the angry face of God, and God behave you if you get to see the angry face of God, because it's right, it's just, and it's going to go to the bone. It's going to go to the bone. And as such, he says, my baptism is a symbolic social ceremony, and the baptism brought by Jesus is Holy Spirit. That's precisely one of the major, major problems which results from this. Because Jesus gave to his 12 disciples, called apostles, he gave them the power to baptize. He explicitly told them, take the Holy Spirit and go and baptize this and do and this and that. And the apostles gave it to another hundred people. And those 100 people gave it to another 500 people. And those 500 people gave it, and this became the priests. This chain is sometimes interrupted. Interrupted. Yeah? Like, for example, again, I don't have anything again. There are hundreds of Christian denominations, <clears throat> and unfortunately most of them are in this precarious situation. Let's take Martin Luther and the people who chose to follow him, called Lutherans or Protestants. There are many, many brands of Protestants, <coughs> Calvinists and then Anglicans. And, but let's take strictly Martin Luther and the so-called Lutheran Protestants. Martin Luther was excommunicated. Therefore, Martin Luther, according to the rule of the game, <coughs> he didn't have the power to give this any spiritual power to anybody. Because it was cut from him. Ritually. Explicitly. Therefore. Everybody who works into metaphysics. Who says. Since the 14th or 15th century. Everybody who calls themselves a Lutheran. Has been baptized. 
with water, not with Holy Spirit. Like the Protestant baptism doesn't exist. It's reverted back to a social ceremony. Not because the persons who do it, they don't have the continuity from Jesus. There must be a man-to-man continuity transmission. Every Brahmin from India who does the fire ceremony and who does, has the sacred thread and has received it from their father, uncle, grandfather in a family. Like every Brahmin is a Brahmin by one-on-one transmission since 5,000 years ago. If you don't have it, you are a fake Brahmin. And you don't have the initiation. That's why I'm saying that the same thing is, the same Pandora box is open here. John the Baptist shows that there is baptism which is made of water. And then it's a placebo. And it has a symbolic value, a sort of an NLP value. And then there is the baptism brought by Jesus with Holy Spirit and fire, which is very rare and which Today, it exists only in certain lineages. Like who received it directly? For example, Thomas. Thomas the Apostle. He received it. Then he went to India. Then there he created a community of people called Nestorian Christians, which live today in Kerala, in Karnataka, in the south of India. They are initiated personally by Thomas and by the disciples of Thomas. Do they have this thing which is called apostolic continuity? Yes. So if you go to India and ask to be baptized Nestorian in Karnataka, you will receive a baptism of Holy Spirit and fire. There are other churches on earth that have this continuity. For example, the Gnostic, the Coptic Gnostic Church of Egypt. The Syrian Maronite Church from Syria. The Catholic Armenian Church from Armenia. The Georgian Church, which I think still is related with the Catholic, Roman Catholic and so on. All these churches, they have a one-on-one continuity directly to Jesus. That's why when they give you a baptism, the baptism is Holy Spirit. But in England... King Henry VIII, bless him, he decided that the Pope was an asshole because he didn't want to grant him his sixth divorce. And he just simply said, from now, I am the Pope of the English Church. He was just a thick, fat sausage eater, a pig and a lot of other things, you know. And it's like now he's the church, the boss of the Church of England. Why? Because he's got the sword in his hand and he can impose it. And some people disagreed. Like one of the last saints of England, was Sir Thomas More. A man for all seasons. There is a Hollywood movie about the life of that one, who simply said, that's not right. Not because of the Pope, not because of this. It's simply metaphysically not right. Mr. Henry, you are our king, but you cannot be the one who governs our religion, because there is no religious initiation put in you. And in this way you are usurping the function of the true messengers of Christ. They decapitated him. He died as a martyr, Thomas More, simply because he dared to speak against the king. 
but actually he was the one who was right. So in this way, no, then you can have a baptism which comes at the time of Elizabeth I and others, but it's a baptism of water, not of Holy Spirit. Pay attention to this because it's socially very provocative, and many of you may discover that you are not baptized with fire and Holy Spirit, and uh, then it's up to you to decide what you want to do about that. I'm, I can only tell you what is obvious from a metaphysical, yogic, and subtle way, that baptism is a very peculiar process, and John the Baptist himself says that what Jesus brings is a totally different ball game. It's not just a social ceremony. And I could continue, this is a very big one, but I let's go further. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but you will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. John cannot stop himself from doing this. He's a manipuristic guy and he wants the sinner to see the sinners burn a little bit. He's happy at the idea that the assholes will go to hell and gnash their teeth. That's a manipuristic sense of justice. You did shit, you go to hell. Jesus is ready to forgive even hell. Jesus is ready to forgive. Even when you deserve to go to hell. But Jesus is another ball game, as I said. John understands the law of karma. And he is a true Jewish prophet. He says it's an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. If you have been sinning, you will burn. And he says this thing, the Messiah who comes after me, he is going to be intolerant. He is going to be black and white. He is going to be no compromise, no bullshit. He is just going and he sees his expectation is that the coming one is going to be like a new Moses. Moses, again, like completely uh, tough. And many other words, and with many other words, John exhorted the people and preached the good news to them. But when John rebuked Herod the Tetrarch, because of the Herodias, his brother's wife, and all the other evil things he had done, Herod added this to them all. He locked John up in prison. So, he was not afraid to go against the king. He was completely, completely strong in this way. But you can see very easily a typical Manipura-Ajna combination. Of course... There, I'm coming a little bit into just the act of baptism because I mentioned that, just to connect it with it. That's where we cross from John back to Jesus and what Jesus did. When all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. And as he was praying, Jesus was praying, right? Even when he was baptized with water by John the Baptist. And he was Jesus, who was God. But still he was playing the game. Very important, very important, because by playing the game, he was authentifying it. He was confirming it. Like then you can say, look, even Jesus 
subjected himself to this. Even Jesus prayed. Why did Jesus need to pray if he was God? He should have said, abracadabra, boom. You know, like, he didn't need to pray, really. Prayer is like an act where you have to exhort yourself, to make an effort, to ask, to wait for an answer. What answer? He was the answer already. And still, Jesus is described as praying. Why? Because the other people were looking at him and Jesus was like a model to them. Like how to do. Do like Jesus. What did you see Jesus doing? Well, you saw him playing by the rules. You saw him praying. You saw him, no. Like Jesus theoretically could have done anything. But he still followed certain landmarks. Including this one. John the Baptist baptized him. And he said, I'm not worthy to tie his shoelaces. You know, So it's like this baptism was a mockery. But taken very seriously, mockery. And in it, Jesus was still praying. And it says, as he was praying, heaven were open. And the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And the voice came from heaven. You are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. Obviously, if this thing would have happened as a physical public thing, there would have been 500 people witnesses to this, and they would have all been falling on their knees and going to follow Jesus. They were not. Nothing happened. Only a few hours later, John the Baptist told to Andrew and Philip, his disciples, that's who you should follow now. Now I'm going down, he's going up, he takes over, he is the star of the day. No? And that was, those were the only people who were told something. That's why it's obviously here that we are being told a symbolic, spiritual, internal story. Maybe, maybe, by synchronicity, by synchronicity, as in Svara Yoga in India and Tibet, like an omen, like what Carl Gustav Jung calls asynchronicity, maybe a real bird, a dove, came by and was hovering just above Jesus. It is possible, because Mother Nature does such things. That's why the shamans and the medicine men and others, they use this science of omens, and when the human being is in a state of clarity and purity they sometimes can read the signs of nature. I do not say that the shamans and the medicine men were 100% clairvoyant and all-knowing and enlightened by a series of omens without end. No. Many of them were semi-clairvoyant. Maybe 25% clairvoyant. Many of the shamans and medicine men that lived in the last 3,000 years on the face of this earth, all of them were normal human beings with imperfections, with some qualities as well. They didn't know everything. The shamans of the North American Indians, they have said many wise things. No, the Native Americans. We quote them saying, when the last tree is cut down and when the last, I don't know, river is poisoned, then you will see that you can't eat the money. No, like, this is a wise word against 
stock exchange obsessed New York stock exchange people who think that if they sponsor Rio Tinto and I don't know what, they can burn down the planet because they've got enough money in their accounts and nothing matters anymore. Like surely these people who are close to the earth, down to earth, they can have a sort of common sense, down to earth wisdom, even forms of clairvoyance. But still it didn't prevent the fact that some white people, and they were not very bright, most of them were garbage from Europe, people who were running away from Europe, most of them criminals, people with problems, losers and others. They went to America, they found themselves some tribe of natives, and they sold them three pieces of glass, and they got a hundred hectares of land for it. Well, those shamans were not really very smart and clairvoyant. Because if they were, they would have said, look, there are coming some idiots who are going to try to give you a couple of liters of alcohol, of booze, and they are go- you are going to give them your land like idiots that you are. You know? And so, you know, why didn't they were smart? Why didn't the white man go to Japan and gave two liters of brandy to the shogun of Japan and buy half of Japan from him for two liters of brandy? Because the shogun of Japan was infinitely smarter than the shamans of the Native Americans. And he said, no, 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 no. You're trying to get to prison, you know. The people who came to make the proposal, they were decapitated for their boldness to even make such a proposal. In some place, they went to South America. Sure, the South Americans had many wonderful shamans. And the Spaniards bought them one by one, which doesn't make them very smart and very clairvoyant. So let's keep things into perspective. There is a science of omens and signs and so on. And some people in India, in Tibet, in South America, in Mongolia, in North America, and other places, they were practicing this science of omens. Because part of it is true. Sometimes the nature is showing signs. And if you would be in a clear conscience you could see and read some of the signs of Mother Nature. Would you be like Jesus then? Not really. You don't become like Jesus just because you can read omens. But it's better than to be a complete ignorant. So in this way, there see, it seems that when Jesus was baptized, there could have been an omen with a white dove hovering over him. It could have been more. Like there were people who when they were in high states of consciousness, the birds were coming and sitting on them. Francis of Assisi was preaching to the birds. And as soon as he came out of the church, the birds came and sat on his head on his shoulders. Birds are afraid to sit on human beings. But not on Francis of Assisi. He had so much anahata that the birds could feel it and they were fearlessly coming and sitting on him. So you can say, that's an omen. Sure. So in this way, with Jesus, it can have been that a bird came and sat on him, or a dove, or something, which is indeed a sign, but the people around didn't perceive it as such necessarily. That's why what we are told here, that the heavens opened, and the Holy Spirit descended as a dove, and the voice said, you are my son, whom I... Maybe John the Baptist heard that one, and saw that one. Jesus definitely heard that one and saw that one. But for the other people, 
it was cryptical. So here the Bible doesn't describe a visible event, except the fact that there was some sort of synchronicity, an omen, which of course most people ignored, but for the sake of the story, we are being told that part. Here, he does not insist too much on the relationship with John and so on. There are other Gospels where this scene and uh, some of the things with John are described more in detail. Here it goes quickly that as many people were baptized, Jesus, playing stupid, came and, you know, because at least if he was stupid, then John was not. John would have said, come on, you came to me and you want to get baptized and you are God and I am just an unworthy prophet. Like, you should baptize me. Then if Jesus was any good spiritually, he should have said, gosh, by golly, you are right. Look how Zvadistanistic I was. I was just coming like a lemming for you to baptize me like everybody else. But now that you sprayed me with cold water... I kind of remembered, suddenly, yeah, 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 sure, sure, it's the other way around. I am God and you are the little creature here. No, Jesus didn't. Jesus said, let's, let's do things the way they are supposed to be done. Like, let's pretend. So Jesus knew it was a mock thing, but he said, if we do it this way, it will have a symbolic meaning later. I will give to this a meaning because I will extend this into the full baptism which I will give to humanity. And in this way, uh, this act is very important because it's like Jesus enters the scene and John the Baptist is about to leave the scene of history. Of course, John the Baptist still is doing a couple of heroic things and dies by martyrdom. He is great. He lives in character till the end, but right now the torch goes in the hand of Jesus. Jesus takes over invisibly. Only John knows, only Jesus knows, and a couple of hours later, the two disciples of John, Andrew and Philip, they are being told, like, that's the man, and go there. And I am moving further, because as soon as this happens, now Jesus is the huckleberry, and he has to do the thing. And guess what's happening before he steps into action? He fasts, and he is tempted. So the, we are being told the following episode, which is labeled the temptation of Jesus, That's, which is very, very, very significant. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, again, it's a way of describing it because the story in the Bible is described for people on Svadistana and Manipura and maybe on Anahata. This thing seen from the standpoint of Ajna and Sahasrara is like, why do you need to say that Jesus was full of the Holy Spirit when Jesus is the Son of God? And Father, Son, Holy Spirit are the triad of God and they are inseparable and one and the same. Of course Jesus is full of the Holy Spirit. Jesus is the owner of the Holy Spirit. It's like Jesus is the yielder of the Holy Spirit. It goes without saying. But it's like, okay, we pretend it just happened with John. When John did it, then Jesus was dressed like in a golden mantle. He was dressed 
in the light of the Holy Spirit. Of course, he was that three hours ago as well. Three days ago, he was still that. But it's like, okay, now it became like it's on. His time had come. So Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the desert. Led by the Spirit. Which simply says, intuitively. Like, he didn't know exactly, he just roamed like a madman. He just went, of course, he was not mad in any way, but he had a clear feeling that now something was coming up. So he was led by the Spirit. It says here. that, But that's what it means. Like, he was like in a state of trance. In the desert, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them, he was hungry. I should say, you are hungry after 24 hours. After 40 days, you should try maybe to fast three days, or to fast one week. Then you will see what's happening to your body, and to the hunger, and to the reactions of the body. Of course, if Jesus didn't eat 40 days, he must have been very, very hungry. The place where Jesus fasted is marked on the map. It's, a, it's, it's in the Palestinian territories of today, in the disputed Palestinian territories, somewhere on a mountain near the city of Jericho. If any one of you has the possibility to travel in those areas, uh, you have to make absolutely sure that you know with whom you are going and how and what. It's possible for some people to go. If you are Jewish, you probably can't go securely there unless you are very, very well guarded. But for other people, it is possible. I have been able to go there in 1995. And it was possible for me as an European person, although there were all those conflicts in the area, to discreetly sneak in that area Later on, some people told me it was very risky or something. Maybe it is. I'm not advising you to go. You probably can see videos of the place. You don't really need to go there. But the place is marked on the spiritual map of the world, like the place where Jesus sat for 40 days and just have been hunger, hungry, praying, meditating, and so on. What's very important, it says for 40 days, he was tempted by the devil. First, it brings, us, it brings up the devil, which many modern so-called Christians who are spiritualists, especially New Age people, say, there is no devil. If you say that, you are a huge fool. What René Guénon said in a very metaphysical and civilized way in several of his writings, Kaiser Soze said it in the usual suspects in the Hollywood movie, in a more Hollywood way. He said the greatest trick the devil pulled was to make people believe he does not exist. It's part of the demonic maya that people are hypnotized in the suggestion that there is no darkness, devil, or demonic forces. Anybody who believes this is a naive, defenseless, candid person who doesn't know what they are talking about. 
Not only that mystics have witnessed demonic forces, Tibetan lamas and yogis and others describe hells, purgatories. They describe the demons and the entities which live there. They describe the subjective feelings. There are even techniques of yoga where they have the balls to send you down to confront them, to feel them directly such as the famous frightening ritual of Chud, the cutting off, the so-called cutting off, which is a frightening, horrendous, tantric, dark ritual in which people have to confront hell and demons. And some people die of fear during the ritual, as expressed by the Tibetan history. So it's not a joke. It's like something terrible. And thus, of course, the demonic exists. Exactly as there are dangerous animals in the jungle. And you should not pretend they don't exist because you are the greatest idiot in the world if you do. Exactly as there are lions and jaguars and they could attack you if you are in the wrong place at the wrong time. Exactly as if a cobra bites you and you are not near a hospital or something or if you are not a great yogi, you could die. Exactly in the same way there exists a lot of pain and terrible things in this universe. And some of these are just dangerous entities and some of them are worse than that. And that's why, um, again, the Christian mystic, the Jewish mysticism and the Christian mysticism and so on, they are com- and as well many others, they are completely comfortable with this, that there does exist darkness, there does exist pain, there does exist hell and purgatory, there do exist demonic entities, there do exist demonic human beings, there do exist human beings which are influenced by demonic entities. For example, one of my Tantra teachers told me in the first years of Tantra, that rape is a manifestation of demons. Like men who commit rape, they are inspired by some manipura and more demonic entities. So a man who commits a rape is possessed. Like he is possessed. And of course, if he is drunk, it's ten times easier for him to be possessed. So, this is opening a huge door Because it's opening the door to demonology. What are demons? Where are they? What do they do? And the mystics have seen that exactly as in the positive side, the angels and the others build a pyramid, by reflection for the balance of the universe, there is a negative reflection of this, like a pyramid which is upside down. And that means the deeper you go in this pyramid... You come to the bottom of things and the lower tip of that pyramid, that's what's called the devil. The, the chief of the negative hierarchy. The worst of all the demons. The boss of all the demons is the devil himself. And under him there are others. And if you study or you remember, you have seen at least Hollywood movies, you know that there are all sorts of names of all these 
demonic entities which are not the same. No, like what is the difference between Beelzebub and Lucifer and Satan and others and others, which are, they are not one and the same. So it's a whole hierarchy of negative things which are better not mentioned, very seldom when we have to mention them for uh, the teaching purpose, we stay away from invoking their presence, we ask for protection to be kept away, but these realities do exist. Even if we don't want to go there or to think about it, it doesn't mean they don't exist. It's like the person who says there is no ditch, there is no ditch, there is no ditch, and then he falls in the ditch and breaks his neck. It doesn't serve anything to just deny these realities. These realities exist and they are not a concoction of the Christian church or of the Jewish and Christian priests or something. They exist in all the traditions of mankind and they are very plastic descriptions made by clairvoyants, shamans, seers and others who have experienced hell, purgatory, interference with such demonic entities and they have described very plastically at least bits and parts of it, like the Christian saint who I told you earlier. He thought he was in hell for weeks, and actually an angel told him that that's just about three minutes of hell. So subjectively, you don't want to be there, whatever is happening. So the first thing is that it introduces very clearly, like, you know, you cannot believe in Jesus and say, I believe in Jesus, but there is no devil. That's just a pathetic attempt of some people who practice a sort of fashionable Christianity, you know, a sort of uh, a civilized, you know, well, let's pray some bridge or some whist and then uh, pretend we are Christians, you know. It's like, it's a sort of, it's not the Christianity of Paul and Peter. It's not the Christianity of Athanasius and Francis of Assisi. The Christianity of the hardcores is a Christianity in which it is acknowledged because this force had the temerity to show itself to Jesus. Here comes the second mystery of what I'm telling you here. Why would anybody be stupid enough to tempt Jesus? Because if Jesus is Krishna or God, you know, an avatar, obviously nobody can tempt God. So why even try? Either the devil is dumb totally and he's tempting, he's trying to tempt the wrong person, poor idiot, or there is something else to this. No, because even Jesus, who is impregnable, you know, he is impermeable, he is subjected to temptation. But then we can say, why did Jesus need to get baptized? Because he said, let's play it. So why did he need to be tempted? Because he said, let's play that one also. It's not that it will serve anything. But it happens to everybody else. And then if I want to carry this mantle on my shoulders, that I represent everybody else, then I have to do that. I have to take that upon me as well. And then this is to demonstrate a universal principle. 
in a certain situation years ago, there was a person who behaved clearly under the influence of some demonic entities. And I told it. I said this person, I told him to him directly. In this situation, you behaved like you were under demonic influence. And there were some people in the school who got very revolted because they hadn't heard me talk about these things. And they said, sure, now you say he's demonized to just serve some purpose of yours. or something. That doesn't even exist. What do you mean? We look at him and he's a normal person. He's just a perfectly normal fellow. Please remember, if Jesus has been tempted, uselessly, but still has been tempted by the devil, then you will be, have been, and maybe are also. It's inevitable for every human being at multiple crossroads to be subjected to temptation. When you pass your bachelor degree or whatever, different educational systems, when you finish 12 years of school in Europe, you pass the bachelor exam. Then you graduate high school and then you are ready to go to university. Why do they subject you to that exam? Because it has to be done. Otherwise, there would be no graduation. Graduation only comes with an exam. If somebody says, I guess I am a non-violent person. Guess what will happen? Not because he says. When the time is coming, there will be an exam. And that exam will address exactly this issue, will challenge. And the person lives up to the statement. And then somebody puts a stamp and says, graduated, passed. This person has passed. It's your bachelor exam. Boom. There has to be a validation. Because if there is no validation, there will be no confirmation. You say... Did I actually sort out my problem with violence, non-violence, or not yet? Hey, I have the scar, I have the stamp to prove it. I have. I have passed. That's what the tests are. That's why in the system, in the Kabbalistic system of Tarot, this corresponds to number 15 in the Tarot cards in the major arcana, which is called by some systems the devil, and it's called by other systems the guardian of the gate. And in the Egyptian mysticism, which was the original hermetic mysticism, from where the Kabbalists took their system to a large extent, it is the hermetic spirituality which has inspired Kabbalah and the Jewish mysticism, Gnosticism and Christian mysticism, Sufi and Islamic mysticism, plus a lot of other mysticism from the Middle East, like Babylonian astrology, Babylonian and other, Canaanian and other, alchemy. Most of these things that you hear, astrology, alchemy, magic, occultism, Kabbalah, Gnostic, they are all coming from one source, which is called Hermeticism. It comes from Hermes, Trismegistus, and the Hermetic books, and the Hermetic, the Corpus Hermeticum. And this was located mostly in the north Egypt in the old days, way before Jesus and those times. Pythagoras studied with some of the last 
hermeticians 300, 500 years before Jesus. So it was much before. And in the hermetic tradition, the number 15 and the equivalent of the devil is symbolized by the sphinx. The sphinx of Egypt, the one who sits near the pyramids. That one is the devil. And what's the function of the sphinx? The sphinx is the guardian of the gate. Which means it in their metaphysics, if you are searching for initiation. Like Swamiji, I would like you to teach me Kundalini Yoga. And then the sphinx, who is like a watchdog at the door, is asking you a question. What is the nature of love? Or something. And that question is calibrated so that it fits to a certain level of consciousness. And if you have that level of consciousness, you can answer that question properly. And if not, like John, we don't know how good John was on Anahata. He was very good on Manipura. Suddenly Jesus comes and says, what about if you look at it from this standpoint? Maybe John would have said, "Uh, oops, that eludes me. So it's the guardian of the gate. The devil is nothing else but the guardian of the gate, the sphinx, or the examiner. The examiner is the devil. The examiner examines you, and you pass, or you don't pass. This examination in Agama, it's called sashes. And in real life, it's called temptation and spiritual tests. Everybody in Agama who passes in the level 4 and up is given to view and to read a series of lectures which I have done years ago, which is called exactly that, spiritual tests. Because we want that people, and if you are beyond the fourth level and you haven't seen it or heard it, quickly, quickly you should go to your teacher and ask for it and really go into it. Because that's a help for, like, when you do level one, maybe you are here brought by a friend out of curiosity. When you do level two or three, maybe you want to go deeper. When you are doing level four, we already know, okay, you want to be part of the community, you want to be part of the lineage, you want to learn, you want to be part of this. And then we give to people this information. Please be aware that if you want to be a yogi, and not only if you want to be a Buddhist monk, if you want to be a Christian nun, whatever you want to be, you will be tempted 526 times till you die. At different crossroads, depending on your karma and depending on how many things are still unsorted in your spiritual history, every time when you need to come to a crossroad, there will be an exam. That exam is not always visible, given by a person or an examiner. That exam is simply circumstances of life which put you in a certain thing, in a certain situation. Example. Swami Vivekananda Sarasvati has promised that he is giving next Thursday a wonderful initiation. And exactly before that, I have a slight motorbike accident. So I have a bit of a bandage here, One of my toes is badly mangled, and then that happens at 7 o'clock in the evening. And then I'm saying, I'm not going to the satsang. I can't. I just said, if you are a hardcore, 
you come with a bandage on and you say, I will die in the yoga hall in front of Swami Vivekananda, but I'm going to get the initiation. That's a test. It's a test which shows how much do you actually want that initiation. Is your pain and comfort more important for you? Or is getting an initiation more important for you? It's an example. It's not all the tests are of this kind. It's about your mother, father, family, you, yourself. You know, here is a test, a terrible test, which comes from the fathers of the desert. That's an ultra-ascetic environment, 5th, 6th century, 7th, 8th century after Christ. And it's monasteries in Sinai or in Palestine, in the deserts of Egypt, Sinai, Palestine, Christian monks and mystics. And one such young man has a monastery, let's say St. Catherine or one of them, a big monastery somewhere in the desert, very rare, very hard life, and he comes and knocks at the door and he says, I want to become a brother in your monastery. The abbot, imagine how the abbot was, the abbot looks at him and says, I can't take you. And the young man says, but sir, I am determined to, you know, I would do anything. Why not? Like you have, you at least owe me that much to tell me why you can't take me. Why have I done something wrong? And the abbot tells him something flabbergasting. He says, you are too pretty for a man. And I'm afraid that you will generate homosexual impulses in the other monks in the monastery. Like you are so pretty, some of the brothers will want to fuck you. And I can't take this risk. It's like I would put a snake in the monastery. It's like a temptation. So I can't take that risk. Guess what the young boy did? Indeed, he was a very beautiful young man. He just went, dug himself into sand, and killed a bird or an animal, and put the blood and everything on his face. And then because he lied in the sand like this, the ants came to him, and they started biting him. And he got bitten by thousands of ants. Until he became disfigurated completely. Like a monster. Then as he was bloody and everything. He knocked at the monastery the next door again. The next day. And when the abbot opened. He said now you take me. That's a test my dears. You know? Like that says a lot about that person. If you are the abbot, you know how far that young man would go. It, it's not the ultimate test. It's not the last. But it tells you a long way about what person you are dealing with. So sometimes the tests are circumstances and this. And the spiritual life of every seeker is full of tests. It's exactly like you have to graduate the university system... And they tell you, you have to accumulate 65 points. And this exam will give you three points. This exam will give you one point. This exam, and you have to gather 65 points. When you have 65, you become a graduate. You get a master's degree. So exactly like this it is with spirituality. You have to graduate various tests. Not even exactly in the same order. Like the tests will not be the same for two of you. Not in the same order. It's completely according to some very vast principles of nature. 
of spiritual evolution. And remember, this is very important. Jesus is the first one who gets tested. Not because it would have any effect on him, but it has to happen anyway. He got baptized anyway, and he got tempted anyway. It's quite obvious that the temptation wouldn't have any effect on such a spirit. That he will give the right answers to the guardian of the gate. But still he is tempted because it is archetypal. He has to demonstrate. He is like a model. You go in his footsteps. Please remember, other religions, like Hindu ashrams and so on, they are not very dramatic about this. The Jewish people, and generally the Middle Eastern people, the Middle Eastern Christians, the early first Christians, the Mediterranean Christians, as well as the Muslims, they are very dramatic, colorful people. These religions are very dramatic. A lot of things are happening. The prophet of God, Muhammad, stands on a hill and he prays. And when his arms are falling down, they lose the battle. And they have to keep his arms up so he can pray. A lot of dramatic stuff, which interpreted from a skeptical and cynical standpoint, it's like it's bullshit. Come on. You know, this is just poppycock stories and so on. But that's the temperament of those people. In India, in Tibet... Maybe they are not so dramatic. And then they don't mention very clearly. Like very few yoga gurus in the tradition have warned their disciples, be careful, your spiritual life is going to be, first of all, a life of spiritual practice. Because if you don't practice, you are not going to get anything. You have to do prayer, meditation, pranayama, sexual continence, something. You have to do it, because if you don't do it, then how is the effect going to come to you? There's no effect when there is no cause. First, the cause is what you do, and then the effect is coming as a result. So, your life is going to be a life of spiritual practice, more or less, and your life is going to be a life of spiritual tests. As you grow up from month to month, and from year to year, Sometimes, even without warning, you are going to reach some threshold levels. And then at those threshold levels, there's going to come some very strange circumstances. Suddenly you have choices, which you didn't even think about. Like a month ago, you didn't think about it. And then suddenly you get a girlfriend, a boyfriend, something, palm, palm, and then suddenly you say, oh, actually my life is changed. I'm going to go in that direction. But a month ago, you didn't even see it coming. That crossroads is a test, is a spiritual test. And the hard cores of spirituality, like Jesus, as you see in his testing, they make no compromise. Not everybody has that. Milarepa has that. Milarepa spent 30 years in the desert, and then somebody sees him, he becomes popular because now he's a big yogi. And of course he relaxes because he has reached nirvana and he can do miracles and everything. No, And somebody is telling him, why the heck are you spending your time on that mountain? And tries to make fun of him. And Milarepa starts singing one of his famous songs, you know. And he says, I've killed more than 30 people. 
my mother and my sister were part of this obscenity. If I don't save myself, I can't save them. They will go to hell. So he says, it's my duty to be here on this mountain and do practice until I turn green. So stop giving me these shitty temptations that, oh, Milarepa, why don't you get out of your cave? For me, to get out of my cave is like the devil coming and whispering in my ear. And now there is a very good justification for you to stop. No. Milarepa says there will be no stop. That's a test. Even Milarepa, as a grand master, he's tested. Remember, if Jesus is tested, everybody can be and will be and is tested. That's why the Christian mystics are right about this one thing. As long as you are alive, the game is not yet over. Because today you can be a great prophet and tomorrow you may be tested really, really bitterly to the bone. Superhumanly strong. And then even if you are a prophet, you might break. You might break. And that's why today you are a prophet, tomorrow you are fallen. And if you are fallen... Shit, you, you screwed it. No? You forfeited. You probably will try back again in the next life or in five lifetimes when you recover or something. That's why nobody can be proclaimed a saint before they die. Because you don't know. Some people could recant God five minutes before they die and say, actually now that I'm on my deathbed, I don't see anything, I don't feel anything, and therefore I'm telling you it was all a dream. I sold you illusions. It was all shit. Nothing exists. You know, it's like, don't do the mistake which I... Then you become an agent of the devil, preaching atheism, materialism, just because you are in a bad mood, just because you are being tested really, really, really hard. And Jesus was, but he did not recant when he was on the cross. And others have been, and they did not. And thus, these tests can go till the last minute before you die. That's why until you die, nobody is 100% sure of the outcome. Life is a battleground. We are continuously tested, so to speak. Not continuously, like every minute, but there are, of course, tests which are endurance tests, and which can go on for 20 years. Like the dark night of the soul. There are people in see that lecture, that satsang given by Maha years ago. It's uploaded on the net. No, It's like there are people for whom it's known. It's described by St. John of the Cross and Francis of Assisi and others. That at some point, the divine consciousness can play a stupid game with you. And they don't give you bliss and happiness anymore. While you had it. Three years ago you had it. And then they cut it. And they cut it just to see what will you do if it is being cut. If you work for a reward or if you will work without the reward as well. Are you truly a karma yogi or you are actually trying to buy something from God? And there are people who they say in the moment when I don't get, shit, 
then I'm not mocking it anymore. Then you, you failed a very important test. The dark night of the soul makes many men and women quit the spiritual path. And it's just a test. That's why the people who know that it's a test, they never give up until they die. They simply say, whatever happens, till my last breath, I'm full on. That's when it's over. It's over only when it's over. Are you going to say, but can't you be tested in the astral worlds after you die? Oh yeah, but that's a different story and you cannot administer or manage that now. Now when you are live, physically alive spiritual practitioners, then you have to deal with this. This is your lot. And your lot is that spirituality is accompanied by spiritual tests. Why? Because you learn, because you grow up. And it's impossible to learn and grow up without having examination levels from time to time. And that's why spiritual tests are inevitable, even for Jesus. And thus, this is a very important lesson for people to understand the nature of their spiritual life. So, here we found out that Jesus, after when he started and he said, okay, now the Holy Spirit came, there's a signal from God, it's like, go, it's like a pistol shot which says, John, down, Jesus, up. No, like it's the next, I took over the torch, it's the next torch bearer, and he would not start without a purification, searching his heart. Even for Jesus, who is God, like Shiva, there still exists this fundamental state of consciousness, which you have experienced in the Hridaya retreat, some of you. Who am I? Shiva is expressed by who am I? I am. Who am I? So even Jesus, even if he is God, or better said precisely because he is God, Jesus first of all has to search his own heart. Like the pistol shot came, you know, like now it's going to start. And oh my God, what a rush it's going to be. Now something amazing is starting. But before it's starting, I stay. I stay a little bit. Who am I? It's very important to realize that this centering exists for Jesus. And the result of it is also the test. As long as you have an emotional body, as long as you have a mental body, it's normal for those to have their own impurities. Even if you are called Jesus. If Jesus is walking in mud, he gets muddy on his shoes or on his feet, even though he is God. Ah, that he could perform a Kriya or some Siddhi from Patanjali's Yoga Sutra and make the mud disappear or because he is a taumaturg, he is a wonder maker. That, that is possible, but that does not eliminate the laws of daily life. If you drink and drink and drink and drink a lot of water, sooner or later you'll have to go to the toilet and pee. There is no other way for that liquid to come out. A part of it will be sweated, but part of it has to come out as urine. 
Your kidneys will feel, even for Jesus, even if you are Jesus, you urinate. And thus, spiritual tests are happening and Jesus has to search his heart. And searching his heart, he is being tempted. As you are going to see next time, because I am not going to do this part now, when Jesus is tempted... He is not tempted like you and I. You can be tempted if I should do my meditation or I should just fall asleep because I'm lazy and I don't want to do my meditation. Should I do 30 minutes of meditation or should I go on Facebook and read all the stupid and useless things which 112 people on my Facebook list do or say every day? Should I waste my time with the crap from all the people who say, Oh, I've seen a wonderful thing today. Yeah, good for you. What does that serve me? You know, just a waste of time. So, this is a test for a beginner, for a pupil. Well, Jesus is not tested about such things. Because he's way, 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 way beyond that. And therefore, Jesus is tested about some things which even gurus are not tested about such things. Buddha was tested by Mara just before reaching Nirvana. Buddha was also tested about some big things. Well, Jesus is tested about some real big things. And as you would expect, Jesus is completely uncompromising, Perfect and perfectionistic, flawless, and of course, he passes the exam brilliantly. The guardian of the gate asks him three questions, and Jesus answers perfectly, 100%, full on. And thus, but what is important is to also understand this connection, that Jesus to be tested, stays alone and fasts. This is a combination which generates some of the deep spiritual tests. That's why it's not for everybody to do this. It's a rare thing which people do in special circumstances. The Indian teacher Bhagwan Sri Rajneesh, who later was called Osho Rajneesh, or simply Osho, Osho in one of his discourses, commenting about this thing, says a very simple thing. When you fast for 40 days, this produces a very special arousing of Vishuddha Chakra, because your body has to take cosmic energy through your Vishuddha Chakra. So not eating and drinking correspondingly little, produces a special arousing of Vishuddha Chakra. And when you open that door in Vishuddha Chakra, on the other side of it, the devil is waiting for you for that last step. So Osho Rajneesh claims that this temptation of Jesus is a temptation which comes from the arousing at a cosmic level, not just you do five minutes of Sarvangasana. But when you reach to the level of Jesus, that the ultimate level of Vishuddha Chakra produces this test. If you choose 
God or the darkness. To give a clear sign that you are on this side of things. And Jesus fasts for 40 days. He stays alone. And inevitably, he is being tested. Although we can expect that he will brilliantly pass the test. But he is. Remember this teaches us, again, the very important lesson that everybody is tested multiple times. This makes spiritual life much, much more complicated and colorful than you think it is. Most people think that just doing yoga and meditation and this, it's a dull process. And No, it's not a dull process. It's like you swim in a river which is infested with crocodiles. That's how Buddha compares it. It's not my metaphor. Metaphor, say, Buddha says, it's like you, cross, you swim across a river and there are crocodiles in that river. Like, it's like uh, spiritual tests are inevitable. You are running in zigzag, dodging bullets. You are in the crossfire. It's a battlefield. The spiritual evolution is not just a flabby, placid process. It's a process which is very alive. I don't know how you are, but when I have understood these things and learned about these things, this created a great awakening in me and a great motivation. You know, it's like I became much more alert. I became much more motivated. Like once I understood what the rules of the game were, then I did not get discouraged. On the contrary, I got provoked. I got more motivated that I am going to run the race, that I am going to pass the tests which the universe will throw in my direction. Remember, if Jesus is tested, even gurus are being tested. No? Like, I can give you plenty of examples of gurus who had their own temptations. Of course, they were not tests like for the beginners in yoga. Did you do your 20 minutes of pranayama today or didn't you because you were too lazy and negligent? Those are kindergarten tests. But when you get at the level of Swami Shivananda, there are other tests of a totally different scope. But everybody has them proportional, always in accordance to what their level is. This is a very, very important lesson. And those of you who go beyond the level four, study the material about spiritual tests, because spiritual life cannot be properly understood and lived out without understanding what's happening to you what you are part of. To be a disciple on a spiritual line automatically involves the fact that you have to pass some tests. I will not say more. I'm in the meeting. I'm in the middle of this temptation of Jesus. It's very important. It's very interesting to see which were the three temptations of Jesus, comparing them with the temptations of Buddha, also three in number, and to see what the attitude of Jesus was, and therefore what is he trying to show to us from 
a radical spiritual standpoint. Next week, I think we are going to have a break in this series of satsangs because it's the International Yoga Day, if I remember correctly. So next week, I'm going to make a general satsang about what is yoga because there will be many people in the school who are not from Agama and I will try to show a fresh perspective on yoga. And then two weeks from now, if everything is okay and I'm present here in the island, which I plan to, then there will be the continuation of this lecture. I'll continue with the Gospel of Luke and tell you about how Jesus was tempted just in this way to understand better what kind of person he was and how he evaluated spiritual things. With this, we stop for tonight. Thank you all for having had the patience to listen to some of these things which shine through the life of Jesus. And uh, I will see you in our next spiritual meetings. With this, we have finished for tonight.